welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, where we talk about how writing works, how writers work, and how the best writers risk being strange. I'm here with GMB Kamichik, who, among other things, is the author of The Automatic Age and Backbone of Night, the newest Automatic Age book. So, uh, Gregory, I just wanted to ask you for initially, uh, what are some of the... We were talking before we kicked on here about questions we don't get asked or do get asked and you know what are some of the things that you always get asked that you just find you know maddening <laughs> to answer versus what are some of the things that you wish people would ask you or just be more curious about right people always ask you what was your inspiration for the book they always ask you where do your ideas come from they always ask you um you know where'd you get the idea for this character or this plot point this whatever those are kind of standard elements they also ask um, things like uh, you know how do you find your character's voice how do you find your character's reason for doing things these are all perfectly reasonable fine surface level questions I think for writers but if you have been at it for a while you've been you've answered that question a lot and at the risk of sounding like a highfalutin um spectacles on the end of my snooty nose you get asked it ad nauseum and you just want someone to ask you a question you haven't heard before right some of the questions that you don't get asked are like when it's um 4 a.m why didn't you go to bed why did you keep writing this book questions you don't get asked are uh, when your kid interrupted you mid-sentence, how did you find your way back to that thought or idea? Questions you don't get asked are um, when your spouse never reads any of your work but is very supportive of you as a person, how do you square that circle of external support but no external interest? You know, These are the kinds of things that I think a lot of people deal with but only if you're dealing with them do you care about the answer so i mean i understand why the questions are the way they are yeah that's an interesting way to put it because there is um a different quality of question you know not that these are low quality questions but just it's a different sort of kind of question that you get asked from by somebody who's kind of um like has done the thing themselves say and you know, very few times is a journalist in that situation. It's also, it presupposes that anybody cares where your ideas come from, or presupposes that anyone cares what your creative process would actually be if you answered that question fully. What they really want, what people really want is a sound bite, mm -hmm. right? That is quotable, as opposed to an actual um, deep dive into the process in its constituent parts. I always find that frustrating. It's one of the reasons I can't stand to listen to writer interviews, usually. <laughs> like, I hate writer interview shows um, and writer interviews because I find, one, inexplicably, they always are asking these service level questions that reveal... So my pet peeve is two-fold. So one is what you just said. They just don't really deep dive into the actual nuts and bolts of the creative process. I find what often people are talking about is a cliche about the creative process mm -hmm. and they're just discussing that um, but it's not really how things work uh, but then the other thing I find frustrating is 
you know instantly if they haven't read the book. And it's not that they need to have read the book exactly. Like, I understand why they wouldn't read my book, you know? But it just, I know instantly that they haven't read the book. And it just, now I'm like, I can't go deep with anything. And it, I, I just, personally, I want to go deep dive on stuff. Yeah, if you're going to have a conversation about something. Okay, well, let's first, let's first acknowledge the pace at which a radio interviewer or a TV interviewer or even a podcast interviewer gets new guests on their show. There is no way they could possibly consume Yeah, I content. get it. So like I completely understand the idea that they haven't read it and also the listener hasn't read it either. So but is that still true in the internet age in the sense of like the the ideally you're archiving this material and it's accessible later. Like when you and I were growing up it was different. You heard a, a thing and then you never heard it again. Yeah. Uh, now it's like I can go find Gregory Kamichik and I can, you know, hear an interview where he talks about his book and I can literally save it for later, go out and read the book if I'm finding it. If it's if I'm in tw 10 minutes into or 20 minutes into an hour long interview, I can just stop it and come back to it after I read the book. Yeah. And people do that. Yeah. The uh, Directors Guild of America does a podcast where directors interview each other. And often I will listen to the first 10 minutes of a podcast related to a movie I was curious whether I should take the time to see. Uh, and then, you know, based on the uh, sort of tantalizing tidbits of that first 10 minutes of their actual how they made it or why they made it, I often will pause it, go watch it. And so it's funny you say that because 100% true. I, that's, that. I think that's how a lot of people, it's not going to be everybody, but the people who really matter to you as an author are the people who might actually go out and buy and read your book, right? So then the premise here, especially in podcast land, of the audience hasn't read it, which is, I think, usually what an interviewer is doing, is they're trying to promote the book create interest in a book. The audience hasn't read it, so they can't talk about when Johnny is uh, taken away, right? Because people will say, who's Johnny and where did he get taken? But isn't it more interesting if they just explain who Johnny is and where he got taken? And, and, and like, I feel like, so my big question for the back of night, like I would want to ask you like what people would call spoiler questions, right? Right. You know, uh, yeah. so I want to ask you a question like, you know, and I hate spoiler alert, but you know, let's just, Spoiler alert, if you have my backbone tonight, you know, save this for later, go buy it and read it. Uh, but, you know, in this book, there's this moment where they come, uh, the, the two main characters come across, uh, so it's a father and son, and they come across this kind of cult uh, It's in this res reserve zone, where reservation zone, where the uh, machines, these kind of marauding, murderous machines, they're not able to enter this uh, zone. Uh, and there's this interesting little conversation that happens there. And I'm curious to know about that. I wonder if you could just explain that scene a little bit. Okay. Talk a bit about kind of how you came at the idea of including this scene. So let's then, let's deconstruct like even the first part of our conversation was what you said. Wouldn't it be better if you explained a little bit of the context before you then answered the question? So here for the dear listener is the context. In the world of the automatic age, it is a world created by my love of the covers of old amazing fantasies and amazing popular science where they would promise this world that was to come. So in the 30s, 40s, 50s, they promised this 
world where everything would be done for you. The kitchens would cook for you, the cars would drive for you, the sidewalks would walk for you. Um, the, the best modern example, and it even isn't that modern because it's from the 80s, would be like the Jetsons, the world of the Jetsons, where just everything is perfect. Uh, so in the automatic age, this comes to pass, and then one day, at a, at a time that they call Last Christmas, capital L, capital C, the last Christmas that ever happened, a group of um, automatons that they call the Autovolts arrive, one per household, knock on the door, come inside, and kill every human on Earth. And only a very tiny percentage of people who have within them a prosthetic device that the Autovolts misread as being mechanical completely sort of survive this first purge. But the automatic age cleans up the mess and goes right on doing what it's always done. It's a perfect utopia, running like clockwork, and now they're in this place, and if they turn on any light switches, they turn on a button, they turn on any of these machines, the autovolts know, and they come. So that's the sort of the, the setting. And so this father and son have survived, and at one point they find a conservation zone. Conservation zone, that's the word I was trying to remember. And inside the conservation zone, there is a, um, a protocol. And so within that protocol, the autovolts cannot enter a conservation zone. No automatic device is allowed to, right? The place they're in supports all green initiatives, and so there are these park areas that are like carbon recapture zones. So it's this big wilding area. And our main characters come in there and they realize there are no automations here, but there's also nothing to fear. And they find a little community that has taken shelter in there who have, uh, they're identified as having been intentionalized. So this intentionalized community believes that as long as they don't think bad thoughts, bad things won't happen to them. They also believe that none of the robots who've killed everyone else are going to kill them because they've chosen not to believe they even exist. They just don't think about them. And they take a pill every day to help them not think about things they shouldn't. And they're in the conservation zone where the robots don't come, so they're getting self-fulfilled prophecy in that sense. And it becomes, I think, to a careful reader, very obvious that the leader of the community doesn't buy their own bullshit. They are just telling it to people so that they are elevated to a place of specialness, to a, a place of religious um, idolatry, and it is because they preach this doctrine that the robots do not come. Right? It's even, it's even more ridiculous because they say, because we don't think about the robots, they don't come. Well, the sentence itself presupposes that they understand what a robot is. So they're thinking about, about them, them all the time, taking right. the pills, you know. That's right. So it's got this self-defeating aspect to it. And of course, what's the characters realize, uh, Kieran and Barry, uh, what they realize initially, like almost immediately, is that well, these people are going to get wiped out. You know, the robots, you know, maybe they can't, maybe their protocols in letting them come in here right now, but something, yeah. they will get in here eventually. There's and, going to be a back door and they'll find it. And one of the, one of the elements of the book is that... Um, Kieran, who's the father, and Bartholomew, or Barry, who is the son, uh, have come to this place, and they're trying to, they're, they're asking themselves, the father is in, under this, you know, he's got this push-pull moment where, like, there are no people left. So if my son's going to grow up 
as a human being, he should be around people. He should love and laugh and have community and he should have all these things. And maybe, just maybe, I should leave him here. Even They ask him to leave, they say, you know, you, it's, it's preordained, you brought your son here, but since you won't take the pills and you won't believe what we're telling you, you're gonna have to leave. And there's a moment where he is, and you kind of realize it in retrospect, as they've left the zone, you realize that he had considered it, that maybe leaving him there would have been a better thing because he got to live as a boy instead of as a you know, creature on the run trying to survive. So why have a scene like that in the, in the book? You know, why did you include that particular scene? Like, what was it sort of generation of that idea, that particular scene, and, and why would you include that? Okay, so two levels. One, as a writer of plot, it's really important to have a moment where your characters question what it is they do and why they do it so that they can state their motivations to each other and therefore the reader can understand their motivations. So putting them in a position where they must choose yes or no lets you understand what kind of choices they might make in a similar situation. So I just wanted that structure. Even before I knew what the scene would be, I knew I had to write a, stru a, a moment where Kirian would explain to Barry if I'm your father and I'm trying to do what parents are supposed to do, I'm supposed to give you a life. And if you're supposed to have a life, what is a life? A life is among other people. That's what humans do. They're communal animals. They should, they should live together. So if I could find anyone, is it better for you to have your dad or a community? Right? I wanted to have that sort of function. But then at the same time, we were right in the heart of... Uh, a very politically charged movement in Canada, you know, right around the pandemic. And there were all of these conspiritualists, right, who were part of the health and wellness, new age mm. community, who were just refusing to check their own privilege and they were just saying like, well, it doesn't matter. We don't have to worry about anything. I'm just thinking good thoughts and so only good things can happen to me. And this incensed me, and I think what many authors do is they take the things that piss them off about the present day, especially science fiction authors, and they make them the premise of the future. And so that's what I did. I presented this intentionalized community that believed the same kind of nonsense, essentially. You can understand where it would come from, you can understand why it would be there, you can understand that in this little gated community where nothing bad ever comes for you, you would believe you were special or privileged. And then I had the robots dismantle it literally one brick at a time and murder all of them one by one. Now, just jump back to this big, the big concept of the series for a second. So remind me why these robots have come to wipe everyone out. I make, in the first book, Automatic Age, the characters only make assumptions. In Back One of Night, they only make assumptions. Uh, not unlike Wyndham's Day of the Triffids, there are only assumptions about the arrival of the menace. There's no concrete facts or evidence. People do not know. Like so many bad things, you don't know everything about why it's there. You can only deal with it while it's there. Now. Are you planning at some point in a later book to reveal the full backstory on that, or do you do you, you know, not have an interest in that? It comes down to that last half of your sentence. Do you have an interest in that? If it became more interesting to reveal it, then I guess I'd reveal it. But as it stands right now, it's more interesting not to know. 
it's literally more interesting if you sure. don't know everything. That's the nature of a mystery. Um, and when they find out a little more each time, it's of use as they discover it. So if I present to the reader the whole picture, then there's no point in withholding the whole picture from the characters. But since I don't want the characters to have the whole picture, I can't present it to the reader or none of the dread of the characters will be present for the reader either. Well, you could, and that's what so many people do. I, this is a thing I, I always have to explain and explain and explain in creative writing classes. Like, the reader does not need to know everything. In fact, it's better if they don't know everything. Now, maybe you do at some point. Like, I know, know everything. Yeah, yeah, you need to know. Yeah. But, like, uh, maybe at some point, you know, you make the decision to reveal the full story or give at least enough pieces it could all be put together. But people will often have this tendency to just dump, like, info at the start of a story and like all of a sudden like now you know everything that's happened in the last 3,000 years of the earth's history right. you know yeah. and, and this is especially a problem I find in fantasy stories and people just like it's an unfamiliar world it's an unfamiliar territory but the characters are familiar with the world and the territory so they'll just dump all this info on the reader right it's uh, like Shakespeare right the past is prologue yeah right. and, and I just find like it's, it's something people have to be trained out of and I'm curious to know what you think about why people have that tendency when they start writing to just dump everything out? Because we are addicted to our own cleverness. Sure. I think that's just... what it comes down to. You have a clever idea and uh, a secret is only cool if you know it. So you have a secret and you immediately want to whisper it to somebody. In this case, you whisper it to the reader. Well, but now, having now the revealed all the secrets, the secret's out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? And so it holds no terror because you know I think people think that they won't, um, they won't be able to keep the reader interested if they don't give them a bunch of stuff up front. But I then really, so. what's going to keep the reader interested is not having that stuff. It takes a while to kind of learn the push-pull of what the reader really wants. People yeah. have make often, I, I find, strange assum wrong assumptions about what the reader wants. Like in a romance, they'll think the reader wants the characters to get together. Well, they don't. Yeah. Once the characters are together, it's, it's over. Well, like, and because I spend a lot of time in comic book land, I can say that uh, definitely one of the inspirations for not explaining it, Day of the Triffids for sure, but Day of the Triffids, I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty darn sure, was an inspiration to Robert Kirkman's uh, Walking Dead. Because the main character, right, wakes up after it's all happened. He lives in the world of the Walking Dead. He sort of missed how it got there, and we don't get to see it. Just like in Day of the Triffids, he missed how it got, he's literally blinded, he missed how it got there, right? And then he's present in it. And how it happened is not as interesting as that it happened. Sure, yeah, that's and just so the environment you're in now. With the Audivolts, what I tried to do is say that how it happened is not as interesting as that it's happening, right? If you built yourself a perfect world, what are some things you could, and I mean, and I allude to this, so it would be a clever, reader or listener here can probably figure out where they come from but if you build the perfect world and you're a human being and humans are a great diaspora i mean i hint that they are such across the solar system uh that the earth is in well if you have something others probably want it it's as simple as that right people want things from other people right you know, one thing that really reminds me of is, um, and you talked about this already a little bit, with the, that, that old uh, sci-fi trope of looking to the future and there being automation that was going to make your life better. Yeah. 
than it having maybe a dark side. I, I always think of, you, you must have been thinking, you must know the story, um, Radbury's story, there will come soft rains, right? But the house that keeps going, the automated house. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I always think of that particular story. So if people don't know this story, go out and find it. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the great Ray Bradbury stories. It's called There Will Come Soft Rains. And what it's about is there's this automatic house where every function of the house is fully automated. Like, you know, it wakes you up in the morning, it makes your breakfast for you, it cleans the breakfast up, brushes it walks, your hair, it brushes your hair. There's all, that, all, all the dreams of like future home automation. Um, but there's no people anymore. There's no one who lives in the house because it's implied in the story that there, there's like the shadow on the wall of like where a nuclear blast clearly has gone off and has painted the shadow onto the wall like it used like it did in Hiroshima. Um, so beyond like nuclear war, these these automated machines are surviving. The house is just running until it runs down uh, with no people to serve, just going through the function. This is a very haunting beautiful chilling uh, Bradbury story and it always makes me think automatic age makes me very much think of that like you've added like a, a whole plot and adventure level into yeah, it yeah the adventure side is definitely there because here's one of the things that you know I love reading dystopian fiction but it got to the point where if I tried to write it it just felt like all the dystopian fiction I had read and so I tried to just something as simple as flip that idea over and say instead of a destroyed world, it's a perfect world. Everything's Perfectly fixed, functioning. Everything's working. Yeah. Every building is nice. Everything is clean. The road, you know, like if you got there, you'd be thrilled. But if you use anything, you'll be killed, right? And so it becomes this, you know, terrible look but don't touch. You know, uh, garden of earthly delights, but you can imbibe none of them kind of idea and I just thought that that was kind of fun and then I also liked the idea that uh, I had read this story of this apartment where it was a new build of a new condo complex and everything was essentially airtight it was not supposed to be right you're not supposed to build that way but it had been and so a person had died and for two years had decomposed and dried out perfectly in their condo and no one knew. And they couldn't even smell it. They were just this perfect desiccated corpse, which is like sad, but in a way also as an image, haunting and kind of beautiful and kind of sad and kind of poignant that you would open the door and the smell would be gone by then. It's two years later and it's just this dried out thing that was once a person. And so if you were moving through a world that one day decided we're not opening any of these doors anymore, whatever you got in there, right? So if you have that automatic room, you can live in there for the entire length of your life. It's gonna make you food, it's gonna make you coffee, it's gonna stream you content, but you can never leave that room until you expire and then that's your tomb, right? I liked this concept. And so, I mean, uh, and so then I said, okay, well, that's only one step, right? That like the automatic cars stop opening their doors. So people are just endlessly looping. One of my favorite images in the automatic age is that the freeways and all these pod cars and all these electric automatic solar powered cars just one day lock all their doors on the night of last Christmas, they lock all their doors and don't let anyone out. And so there's this great 
endlessly driving freeway cemetery of all the people that could never leave their cars. And it just goes over and over. It never stops and it's solar powered and it's self-replacing and it's, so it's just always happening. And this becomes a huge barrier to Barry and Kirian where they have to cross the freeway and it's 10 lanes in both directions. So it's 20 lanes of freeway of these bullet things shooting by with corpses in them. And they now have to play a game of Frogger to get across it essentially. And I just, you know, it starts, uh, for me anyway, writing starts with those kinds of images and those scenarios and then trying to sort of string them along the clothesline of the plot, if you will. Talk a bit about, you mentioned images in the book. So you actually literally have a bunch of images in this book, uh, you know, much more than a normal book. Um, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your work as an illustrator on this book and kind of some of the way you designed, uh, just, you know, and how the physical book looks. Uh, well, the physical book, if we're just going to talk design elements for a second. Um, so Adam's book had this beautiful format, which I really liked and I used for um, Shared World and I used it for Red Earth and that's just this little five by seven. The ones to make it through. The ones to make it to through. Make it through. That's what it was. So I became obsessed with it simply for its function little it literally it fits in your pocket it's kind of a single serving story I like that I'd forgotten about it in terms of prose and it was had stolen that format for uh, comics and comics adjacent projects like Red Earth but then I read uh, you were never really here on a hour and a half plane ride from I forget I was in Vancouver to maybe Washington or something like that. Whose book is that? You will never. You were never really here. Um, again, we're, we're the worst. You're going to look it up. Okay. The point is, I loved it, but what I liked the most about it, it was a complete story that I could read on a plane ride. And it basically mirrored Adam's... It reinvigorated me to the format of this little book. Jonathan Amy's, the Jonathan Amy's That's book? That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. So it reinvigorated me to the format of the book. And so I had had this short story uh, that I called Heart Hole at the time um, that I told myself, if I expand this in too, sh too short to be airplane length, which is how I started thinking about it, right? Um, but what could I add to it? And what I did add to it turned it into the automatic age. And because I was also had done Red Earth, which was all pictures and a little bit of text in that same format, I thought it would be fun to flip that. So this was me, it was all about process. I had done a book that was mostly drawings and a little bit of text. And so I wanted to take a book that was mostly text and put in a little bit of drawings. And then I said, those illustrations will not be spot illustrations, which anyone familiar with opening a book that has illustrations, you read the book, then you find some artist's interpretation of an event in the book. That's a spot illustration. I wanted the illustration to be the next page of the book. So you read that paragraph, and then you look to the facing page and there happens to be a picture of a robot. That's that page. Read the picture. Then when you turn the page, that's the next thing that's happening. So kind of like, um, you know, it's hilarious because we're talking so much about books and we keep forgetting all the authors and all the designers of <laughs> every know, book right? we mention. 
But I'm gonna charge it too here. much coffee today. He's gonna grab a book that my daughter lent his kid, which is um, so is that the one you had read? Selznick, yeah. So Selznick. Brian Selznick. Yeah. Who did a great book called um, Wonderstruck? The Wonderstruck. I, my more favorite book of his is um, uh, the invention of Hugo Cabret. Uh, but uh, he does a really brilliant. But he has a really brilliant stuff. He initially was a just a, a book illustrator, uh, and then he had like like for children's books, and then he did his own children's book, uh, and then he started doing this. this kind of young adult books where they're they have long sequences of illustration for like you know 30 pages 70 pages of illustration then interspersed then it'll just switch over to prose for like 30 70 pages or whatever and it'll switch back to illustration you know he he has a really uh the but Hugh, the invention of hugo cabret was the one that won a bunch of awards and was really big so what happens in the just for the you know because it's a audio presentation the reader then is flipping from picture, picture, picture as story to prose, prose, prose as story, and they're intended to be seamless. So I wanted to approach this idea in the automatic age. Like there are, for example, some two page spreads in the automatic age, which I think that's the point in which a reader, they might be, uh, you know, 50, it's about 50 pages in, where you would finally realize that these are not spot illustrations. Because what I've described is the place they are in the last chapter. And the two-page spread is a very different place than where they go when the writing resumes. So you must therefore infer they went here. And that's the story of them going here. That's all you need to know is they went here and they kept walking. They didn't go inside, right? But here is a beautiful luxury condominium with all the delights therein that they cannot go inside, right? Um, I also have a scene where, uh, well, this is, this is all circles around. This is how I know whether people are visually literate or just literate. Because a reviewer and an interviewer said, like, I just can't figure out how in automatic age the audible tracks them down. Like, it's cool that he just shows up, but wouldn't it be neat to know how he tracks? And I said, well, there's a very, very specific illustration that tells you exactly how to track them. And, you know, they're confused and they're a little, you know, a little annoyed. And I said, well, if you go back, you'll see there's a picture of that audible. And they're like, yeah, I see it. And he's all broken up in the mirrors and it's like a reflection and what a creepy image. I'm like, okay, but look more closely at that image and you will see there are fingerprints on the glass, which tells you that the audibles, once they have found a a uh, person can literally read their fingerprints and follow those fingerprints wherever they've gone and just keep looking for them, right? But it's not stat it's not stable, ever. Well, but why would it be? Because you're not writing from the auto points. It's, the audible isn't a narrative focal point. That's right, so it gives me the ability to have an, the audible be a narrative focal point in pictures without being a character, right? Sure, yeah. So we get to cut to the monster for a moment without writing about it. Because once we write about it, I have to reveal too much. I have yeah. to tell you too much about it, how it works, how it sees, how it thinks, how it does all these things in order for you to understand it as a character. I have to humanize it in order for it to have a point of view. Didn't want to, so yeah. instead use pictures. Half the point of that thing is that it's not a human. It's not acting like a human. It doesn't right. have the thought pattern of a human. It's got this different way of thinking. Um, 
or you know whatever approximates thinking for it you know it, it's following the protocols and you don't want to be writing out the protocols right i mean <laughs> you know? i did write them out but what people but you're right though uh what people will otherwise do is they'll anthropomorphize the things viewpoint which i always find i don't like in books like i like oh monsters. i like it just fine i don't but, like it personally yeah i find it is um it doesn't keep it alien what's interesting to me is when the thing has an alien point of view and it can't be understood mm-hmm. like to me if you're in the world of monsters especially like that's where the monsters are interesting see and that just comes down to preference so like yeah, you're asking about why do you, you don't want to know what what hannibal lecter really is thinking right you right you just want to understand his mind is so far beyond yours sure what again that's um mileage may vary yeah sure it depends right. so for me i like it when i don't know things about the villains about the world i like to discover along the way i like to remember be forced to remember a detail from early in a book that now matters without it being recapped i love that kind of writing um i'm sure my agent is cringing and uh, publishers are saying yeah but readers don't like that most readers so maybe i'm limiting myself but if you're not making what you you know i'm i'm in a position where the writing i do i'm not beholden to some massive audience so i don't have to make choices that you would have to make for a massive audience you know you may not as stuart mclean would say you may not be big but you're small and so because i'm small enough i can fit into a little niche where uh someone who likes the puzzle who likes not to know it all who wants the ride but not the not the tour behind backstage right can can read those books there's plenty of ride in these stories right you run for your life through all through automatic age and all through backbone and night you're running for your life but uh you don't always know why is that one reason that you uh are using these very short clipped chapters is that partly for this pacing reason yeah yeah and there's a there's another side of it too is the book itself is so small long chapters don't lend itself to a short book at least like i suppose they could this short book does not lend itself to long chapters i want them to be moving from place to place on a pretty regular clip i want you to be exposed to a large amount of world without having to read a large amount of exposition so short little vignettes of them in strange places and what they all have in common is the characters either observe something they know to be true or they learn something that they thought was false right it's like they kind of that's what each of the scenes has in common or why i would place it there and not all of it is obvious on the first read but the book is short enough that if you're like why would you include that you could read it again and be like oh yes the other book it i mean reminds me of a little bit also um of Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Mm. Sure. I I mean it's yeah. it's, it's not like it in many ways. Yeah. But uh, uh in the ways that Cormac McCarthy can write a better sentence in 2 minutes than I can write a whole book. Well, McCarthy in a year. is unnatural. Yeah. There's a word in that book, The Road. Have I ever told you about this? There's a word in that book where at one point he talks about the solid or drying from the earth. And if you actually I, and I really was reading this book and I was like solid and I tried to look it up in a dictionary. It's not in the dictionary. I do more research into it. Uh, Cormac McCarthy is like the first person to use this word in like 400 years. 
it was previously used by some monk uh, to describe, you know, uh, the God's grace in the world. Like it's a word to sort of suggest the suggestiveness of God's grace, like when it seems to be apparent in an object. Right. Or in something. So the idea that McCarthy is getting at just is the that, right word to have yeah, three, four hundred years old. It's exactly, and it's like that's like a preternatural ability yeah. that he's developed and honed at yeah, that. I wonder, point. do you do you collect words like baubles or gems in little notebooks or anything like when you find just I the should. Right word? Well, once I found Salad, I, I was yeah. like, maybe I should start doing this. But um, but but what 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 is in the road is that father son dynamic. You know, it's these two characters in a kind of apocalyptic scenario. And they're tra- traveling uh, towards kind of a somewhat unknown destination. Or yeah, you could triangulate the automatic age as the road meets the Jetsons by way yeah. of the Walking Dead. And kind that of. Bradbury story yeah. maybe as well. Definitely. Yeah. That's a good way to put it though. The road, Walking Dead, and the Jetsons. I love that um, right. imagine, strange mix. Yeah, imagine Rosie has just had enough, right? It's got that pulp, because um, it's got that pulp aspect of in it where it's not like it's a laugh a minute but like there's that like fun of it you know well i kind of the idea is that the automatic age came out of the soup it's sort of like weaponized capitalism resulted in the automatic age almost by accident like if the powers that were had been thinking they wouldn't have replaced themselves with robots, right? Because once you take away the need for labor, you have no control over a population, right? You need to have them laboring in order to have any agency or authority over them because the labor produces the thing they need to live in the world that you govern. So once that's removed, there's this whole scaffolding and I've been been, uh, accused when Automatic Age came out, one of my favorite slash least favorite reviews I saw was somebody saying like, oh, Kamichi is clearly a communist. He doesn't want, right? Which is tacitly untrue, but it's interesting that they see that in the work, that characters who are fictional, who are evaluating a world that used to be based on capital and is now based on luxury, Right, where you can have anything you want, anytime you want, but they still pay for things with these coins, which they call labor. So you put labor in and you get a, what you want. But it's so removed, the population doesn't even remember what labor was. Right? That's how luxurious the world they're in. Right? They don't know how to do anything. Yet, that same world still has war. And the father is a war veteran. And so, Clearly, it's all a lie. It's just a propaganda machine that says you have everything you want. Well, who are you at war with if you have everything you want? Right? You can't possibly have everything you want or you wouldn't have war. You want something else. You went to get it and you took it from someone. And so all of these things are kind of baked into the fabric without me telling you in a three-paragraph introduction, here's the history of the world. But if you read carefully, you can realize that the world was fractioned right, and factioned and struggled against itself before it reached some kind of equilibrium and that a peace was brought and one of the things that brought the peace was this lifting of labor and it had catastrophic results on humankind, right? If you can't do what you're made to do, 
what is your purpose is one of the underlying themes that is explored in many ways in many from many points of view yeah and the, and the audibles are in a different way just sort of doing the thing they were made to do they're doing what they're made to do perfectly yeah and with precision and yet it's you know generating this nightmare for the these remaining people yeah. in this and world. without malice yeah without yeah. malice but i think i always think that's more interesting like we we gregory and i also have a comic that we're making uh with heavy metal called the eye collector and one i think the great things about the monster and the eye collector is he is without malice he's he's literally creating a nightmare world for these people <laughs> yeah and in the eye collector is neat because curiosity seems to be the driving factor in our monster sort of like a pleasant wish fulfilling curiosity like if i could just figure out how people work i could give them what they want and wouldn't that be the best thing ever so no, i've got to do experiments to yeah, see so i gotta figure out what makes them tick like taking them apart but I think that, that that lack of malice is creepier. Like the audibles are creepier because they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily hate these humans. In fact, they introduce themselves to every human they see every time that Barry and Kirian meet an audible. The reason they've survived so long is that the audibles have a protocol of being polite. And so they ask people that they cannot identify necessarily as people if they are in fact people. Yeah. So they will say like, oh, you know, I believe you're a human occupant. Can you prove that you are not before I undertake your murder? And because Barry is able to say, no, no, I'm automatic and I can prove it. He has the lower half of his body is prosthetic. And so he's able to plug into the autovolts and he uses a design flaw in his own prosthetics to dump his battery, his stored charge from his legs into the audible killing so when they're supposed to be making this exchange to prove uh you know it's like imagine you could meet a person and they extend their hand to shake your hand and then when you shook hands you electrocuted them yeah that's the way essentially this, what Kira this does. plays out in the book is it's very much like he like this in this polite exchange like gregory is saying like is you know the machine walks up and says hi i'm machine whatever yeah. you know i'm here to slaughter you <laughs> you know uh, please, you know, I'm machine, whatever, please introduce yourself. Meanwhile, it's like holding a gun, basically, yeah. right? Because and what they're, if they're wrong? <laughs> and right? the things like, you know, I'm, uh, and then Barry, you know, Kieran then says, uh, oh, I'm, you know, whatever. Yeah. And the thing goes, incorrect. You are a human occupant. And he goes, no uh, exchange to verify. Yeah. And then they start doing the handshake. Yeah. <laughs> and then they plug each other's, yeah. they plug their, uh, you know, micro USBs into each other. That's why I'm saying there's like a interesting humorous aspect to it, you know, like the politeness of the thing that's got like a knife there ready to stab him. If second that it verifies he's yeah. a human occupant. But the other side is that there, it only has a knife because it ran out of the more efficient tool yeah. already. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so they meet audibles in various states of disrepair ones that are brand new and are still armed and other ones that have used every means of their disposal and they're just basically a wreck of them former selves but what the audibles have still as part of their protocol is this politeness to verify first beforehand and as soon as there's a shadow of a doubt they don't attack which is by the way much better than how most humans behave <laughs> Right? It's a, it is my indictment of how humans make war. Um, 
but it's also creepier i think don't you think like there's, there's, there's something yeah. creepy i don't even know what it would be exactly but there's something creepy and disturbing about a creature that is doing horrible things to you but doesn't even intend to yeah necessarily it's just doing what it does and there's a sort of dispassionate the dispassionate aspect of it where it's kind of almost taking you apart and it just wants to see what happens like i feel like there, there's something it's, it's the same sort of like terror of like when a kid takes a bug apart you know like yeah. there's something horrible about the fact it, it's it's weird but there's something horrible about the fact that they don't even intend mm -hmm. necessarily to be hurting the thing well and the autobots themselves are see-through you can see through their skin to the to the mechanisms beneath which you know metaphorically it, it serves as sort of narrative purpose also right like barry and kirian can see them coming they see what they really are they see them for what they are just uh puppets marionettes machines following a protocol and so they can in their own mind uh have no reluctance to destroy them but i take a fairly luxurious amount of time describing the suffering of the audibles right where they have been injured horrifically and they're just trying to do what they are designed to do they, they have no malice but the things they've found and encounters have had great malice against them which is kind of subvert try to subvert that well i think that's an important thing whenever you're doing a story too is just figuring out what are the different ways you can attack the theme? I find too often when I'm dealing with writers that they'll be married to some viewpoint they have and they won't realize that the only way to get that viewpoint across effectively is to try to get the other viewpoints in. Mm -hmm. you know, and then you got this war of perspectives and then they start to vie for you know, dominance in a manner of speaking. And you know, if you've set the story up right, your perspective will win out in a manner of speaking but where people will make the mistake is they'll be a f they'll just want to be too didactic like they'll want to just get the point across and they won't give the counterpoint its fair share that's why thanos is such a great villain right because thanos is right if you go if you look at like what he has to say his point of view is correct yeah if you take the pressure off people will be happier in a way that and that's what's so chilling about it you know is that like especially if you look at the movie thanos you know when he he, he um you know he comes to these planets he slaughters half the people and then as he points out you know a thousand years later they're doing better movie thanos is harder to um identify with for me than comic book thanos who does it for love yeah but right? but but on both He's sides you know, it's as awful as it sounds. He's paying his dowry to death. Yeah, I do like prefer comic book Thanos. But he just wants. But the I think thing what's, he loves what's interesting about movie Thanos is it, it's a better illustration of that um, making a villain that has their reasons, mm -hmm. and their reasons are sound. Right. So it's not that you should accept that he's right, but he is right on a certain level, and right. you have to deal with it. The yeah. fact that he's right on that level, and like. You well, have to you have to make you, you have to make a stronger counter argument now. It, it's not just a straw man. I find so often people will set up a straw man uh, enemy in to make their point in, in a weaker fiction. So what I like about the Autovolts is that they have this 
ac- you know, accurate perspective in a manner of speaking. Yeah, like it's true. The Earth is better off without people. In, on a certain level, sure. Yeah. It, it, on almost know, every level. Except for, of course, from the perspective of these of people. The people right? <laughs> and a, you could argue that that's an important perspective. Like, eco- like the uh, mm-hmm. ecosystem functioning, the autovolts see the one thing that harms the ecosystem the most as the thing that's got to go. And that's almost the same, one of the same themes that you see in the Matrix. Uh, right. At least the first Matrix is that same idea. Yeah. And you know, but they express also, the idea that humans are a virus potentially. They I'll, operate like a, they classify them as a virus, you know. Yeah. So but I, you heard it here, folks. I heard it here first, folks. It, that is not the reason the autobots kill it, right? Sure. It just becomes the, the obvious, obvious reason people would see when reading. But also, I think what's, what's powerful about it is like to make a counter argument that somehow, you know, it's worth, people are worth having around requires that you seriously consider the the converse argument and you put something and you put that perspective in the story you know i I find like that's the thing that makes um a really powerful story often is that the themes are playing out rather than like it the story has a point is like there's various points and they're playing out against one another and you've got this debate going so one of the things that I tried to do, like with that scene we talked about earlier with the intentionalized yeah, community, thinking, right? That's why I bring that one my, up. My thesis here is not that Barry and Kirian are better than them. The premise that I'm exploring is when calamity occurs, what kind of societal or interpersonal structures are best suited to survive calamity? Ones that believe in wishing or ones that believe in doing. Well, obviously people who do things are going to survive a calamity more than people who are simply wish for things, but... But in the meantime, they're not necessarily having as good a time. That's right. They're not having as good a time. You could argue that the wishful thinking, at least they get to have their paradise for a little bit. Right. And that is literally what is presented. They live in the garden. They are unaffected by the evils of the world, and when it's over, it's over for them fast. Mm-hmm. So would you rather live, you know, would you rather live in ignorance and bliss? Would you rather live in uh, intelligence and terror? Is essentially what is presented in the background of that. I was reading a finance book recently, and uh, the author said in it, um, at one point he's talking about his friend's home was robbed and the thieves took all the televisions and left all her books and he says and we always make we have the same choice to make <laughs> he's like we you can you can go buy books or you can go buy a television uh, and which <laughs> and i thought it was such a brilliant you know sort of way to encapsulate just what value education has versus you know this kind of passive reception of things not that I'm anti-television, but you know, I thought that metaphor was so clever um, that you know people, because of course the implication here is that people willingly just you know let the world you know steal their books from them. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, that when the thieves come take your TV but leave your books, you don't. You just focus on the fact that your TV is gone. Right. Uh, well, and it is, and it is a perspective sort of thing that comes into play now, and you don't think about how you've sort of robbed yourself by buying the TV in the first place in some ways. Well, I think it bears pointing out that, like, the missing thing in this case, if we're talking about things taken, um, Kirian 
is a veteran and he has prosthetic limbs and he has a prosthetic chassis and those things have been taken from him. But I don't really spend, I spend well maybe only about 300 words talking about the sort of downside of that from Kieran's perspective. Um, and the rest of it is just how it is. And this is because I grew up uh, with a father who had prosthetic limb where I didn't quite realize as a young boy that everyone didn't have them. Like that's how normalized it was in our household. And so I wanted to try and recapture that idea with uh, Kirian being a father who's lost an enormous something, what other people would value greatly. And he doesn't spend any time whinging about it through the whole book. And in fact, when the chips are down, the thing he lost is what keeps his son alive. So he traded it. And wouldn't you trade anything for that? I mean, which is a trite thing to say, because a lot of people wouldn't. There are a lot of people out there who don't trade much for their own kids. And I wanted to set up kind of a parable, almost a, it's almost a fairy tale of what a father is willing to give up for his son. I used to uh, know a guy who had two prosthetic legs and um, you know, he'd walk around in them. You know, they're, he was perfectly functional for walking. Um, but I remember every time somebody would ask him about what happened to his legs, he would say, well, it's a great story. Remind me to tell you sometime. Then he'd walk away. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody actually right. knew. Because, because being defined by that exactly. is such a ridiculous thing. Mm -hmm. right? And so And meanwhile he's walking. Like his point was like, you know, I'm literally like walking around. Like why are you talking about how I don't have legs? Yeah. And even if you're not, you know, the, the, that isn't the uh salient point to be made here. And even even uh the main character So there's two main characters, but it's really in book one it's Kyrian and in Back one of night, it's more Barry, mm -hmm. right? Has his has his um, evolution into the main character, but in the first one, Kieran is not spending any time thinking about what he lost. He's thinking about literally putting one foot in front of the other, because as long as he's moving, there's a chance for his son to survive. He doesn't even know where he's going until the very end, where he realizes what it is he's fighting for. Is why it makes me think of the road where you've got that same dynamic, uh, you know, and you have a similar sort of way in which it becomes eventually it starts to become more and more the son emerging as a character right. uh, and, and learning, you know, both by following and by kind of questioning his father's actions, like what he sh maybe should be doing and how he could survive this world. You've got both characters that are growing up in this world. You know, one of the great moments in the road is where. The kid asks um, about, you know, the, as a, the father says, you know, oh, it'll be such and such, take us two days as the crow flies. And the kid goes, starts asking what, how, what that means. Yeah. What's a crow? Because he's never seen a crow. He's like, oh, it just means to go in a straight line. And then there's like a moment where it's silent and the kid goes, there are no crows anymore, are they? <laughs> are there? He's like, no. He's like, maybe on the moon? He's like, they couldn't fly to the moon. So... Things like that. There are a lot of moments like that in this book where the son mm -hmm. questions. But the son's been around long enough to know how things were. Yeah, because the weird flip side of it is like, on one hand, he's not prepared for this world and he's just a kid and, and so on. But the other side of it is like, because he's growing up in it, he's not making the same assumptions based that his father's making right. based on how the world used to work. That The guy doesn't even realize he's making. And this is, I, this is where the same sort of thing comes in the, in, in the road and always makes me think of that. 
It's, it's got that same sort of thing where you start to see slowly over time like things that Kieran is doing that maybe he doesn't even realize he's kind of doing. Oh, that. he's trapped in a paradigm. That's 100%. He's trapped in a paradigm. That's yeah. the way, best way to put it. Yeah, he's trapped in a paradigm that I wish the world was the way it was so my son could grow up the way it was. But Barry is growing up in the world as it is. And so kids, you know, my kids are the same age as Barry's supposed to be. They are infinitely adaptable. Oh, this is how it is now. Oh, this is how it is now. Oh, this is how it is now. It's no problem for them. And so I wanted to have those two things. I'm, it's very gratifying for me to hear you say that you caught those elements in it because I wondered, should I have spent more time developing that or ratcheting that tension? But the last line of automatic age, or almost the last line, is this idea that they're gonna go looking, where are they going now? They're gonna go look for a place where the future didn't happen, right? But what is meant by that, from Kieran's perspective as he answers it, is I'm gonna stop promising you things. We're just gonna take things as they are. And we're not, I'm not gonna tell you it's gonna be better, I can't. That's actually a lie, because chances are it'll be worse, right? So we're not gonna promise how the future's gonna be. And in the backbone of night, They've been through many misadventures, unstated. They refer to a few of them, but we didn't see those adventures. And I think it's more clear that Kieran is very honest. Whenever Barry asks him, like, is it gonna be good or bad? He's like, well, probably bad. We'll try to make it good, but it'll probably get really bad, right? And so he's not lying about what's happening. And as a result, I think, Barry is more able to deal with what happens than if he had been told it would all work out. Which is ultimately the responsibility of science fiction writers. You know, like, do I think robots are going to come and kill us all? No. Have I seen all the Atlas videos? Do I track Boston Dynamics development in robot constantly? I'm always looking at it. I'm super fascinated by it. Do I think an army of killer robots is going to come and get us? I do not. Right? It's, not, it's just not within our realm. Too many humans would have to cooperate to build an army of killer robots. And humans do not have at their core the capacity at this stage to cooperate to that degree. Right? So no, I don't think killer robots are coming. It's fun to explore the idea and everyone's like, oh, the robots, you know, it's, everyone references the Terminator. Automatic age could not be further from the Terminator in its plot or reason for existing. But it's the quick it's the one pop culture references all the time when someone hasn't read the book and wants to talk about automatic age oh are the robots coming for us are they going to take over no they're not interested in taking over they're interested in removing humans but they don't want to be in charge that's a human perspective any final thoughts on uh, the automatic age uh, in this spoiler filled interview if you uh, have read the book thank you so much for reading it and caring enough to listen to this podcast after the fact to find out what we actually thought and why I did it. And if you are curious about reading the book, um, I will encourage you to buy either The Backbone of Night or The Automatic Age. They're written so that you can read either in either order. Well, thanks for talking to me, Gregory, and keep writing the wrong way. Thanks for having me, John. <laughs>